Hello, welcome to the Comparative Agility Podcast. My name is Simon Hilton, and in this series we'll be talking with world leaders in agility to help understand how we can make continuous improvement a part of your company's DNA. In this episode, I speak with Brooke Schoenfeld and James Ransom about the comparative software security capability and how it can help your teams build security into your product development practices. Hello and welcome to Comparative Agility. Today, I'm joined by James Ransom and Brooke Schoenfeld for our new security capability. James and Brooke, how are you? Good. How are you? Thanks for inviting us in today. Excellent. I am quite excited about this uh, this capability because just the other day I was actually talking with an organization who is very interested in their security. And I know that from working in the kind of the digital twins space, that cybersecurity is becoming a very big business, but also a concern of many organizations around the globe. So if can we just start out with that, actually? Like what's changed in the last couple of years to really create this focus on cybersecurity? Obviously, people are losing stuff from getting attacked. And there are a lot of different attackers, and we see those play out. But the vast majority of the compromises you never hear about because they're kept internally. You don't have to report them. And so that that means whatever you're seeing is just a tip of a huge iceberg underneath. So I think that's a piece of the puzzle. The other piece of the puzzle is there's a lot more awareness amongst developers. I've really seen this over the years, and I'm sure James will remember this too. When I first started this space, being Cisco InfoSec's very first application security architect, we'd talk about security and they'd say, you guys do that. But I don't think I've talked to a developer, and this is entirely anecdotal, but I do get to talk to a lot of developers who's looked at me and said, security, no, that's not my problem. I think it's really shifted over the years. James? Yeah, and I, I think one of the things, and it's been our philosophy for our books and most of our, our talks and our work ethic that we've had, is that we really believe that security, what's changed a lot in the last few years is security is now moving into the engineering realm where they're in charge of it rather than the CISO or CSO. I've got a big passion on this because I had served in seven so roles before, but where we're really going with this is that the developers should have security experts trained and embedded in their teams that act as product or application security champions with a dotted line reported into the application or product security team. It's much easier, as Brooke and I say over and over, to train a developer to be a security expert than the other way around. In fact, the role of chief product security officer, which I alluded to earlier, reporting into the head of engineering rather than the CISO has now come into vogue. There's a lot of those roles. They may not have the title. It's very similar to back when the CISO and CSO titles were out there, but they do have the role. But most importantly is the software security engineer should be developers first and security experts second as part of each product or application development team with the ability to grow into a group software security architect over time. And Brooke, of course, has written several books on what it means to be a security architect and the importance of security architecture. And we'll probably get into that later in our discussion. But one thing I wanted to make clear is that although InfoSec has had a key role in oversight for application and product security, when possible, 
we strongly believe that it's a functional and operational rule that belongs in engineering and that you must build trust by empowering the developers to create secure software. And one of the advantages of having software security experts reporting to engineering organizations means that they are empowered by the fact that they are part of the same organization as development. They're directly responsible for implementing the SDL policies, procedures, and associated tools, and understand software development, its architecture, and the level of effort required to fix issues. And ultimately, as both Brooke and I talk about a lot, is software security remains at its essence a people problem requiring people-driven solutions. The goal of security technology isn't to replace the human, but augment them, taking care of the manual work so that human expertise can be leveraged and reserved for more challenging issues. And that's really the gist of what's changed over the last few years. It used to be in the realm of the CISO. It used to be more of an oversight function, and it wasn't really built into engineering. Brooke, why don't you follow up on some of that, too? If you could. Thank you, James. Absolutely. And that's a huge sea change. And as James, as we did our couple of tours together, uh, trying to build these kinds of programs at various big tech companies, James would always say, if you can't trust developers to do security, they'll write whatever they want. And we trust them not to put in backdoors or viruses or malware. For heaven's sakes, they ought to be able to do security. And it's funny because security folk really wanted to hold on to this deeply. And part of that is not what you what might be obvious. Oh, they're trying to hold on to their job. No, it's taking deep responsibility for the organization. And there's a due diligence responsibility that every security person should, if they don't, you should, hold for their organization to uncover risks and not to pull a rug over them or hide them, but to say, yeah, I think this is something that needs to be addressed and the reasons why. Uh, And so that responsibility is a big one. It's a really big one. So security folks in order to hold that would hold on to software security in a, a dysfunctional way. But really a lot of the folks that I'm working with today And I'm very lucky I get to know a lot of people who are doing AppSec in my current various activities. And again, this is anecdotal, which is why we want the survey to be out there so people can know for themselves where they stand. But most security folks are not into, I want to hold on to this anymore. There's a lot of agreement. I participate in a couple of communities where nearly everyone is pretty much on board with yeah, we have to empower developers and train them and help them to take a hold of this. It's the only way this is going to really happen. And I guess the last thing I'll say is I hold this one number very in mind consistently when I think of the bigger picture, and that is 27 million. That's an estimate by Evans Data, and I have to say I haven't looked at their research, so I can't vouch for its veracity, but it's an estimate. It's a number. That's the number of programmers on planet Earth, they estimate. And it doesn't matter if it's 23 million or 32, to be honest. It's a lot. And the vast majority of them are not working in a security development life cycle. They're doing what they can if they do anything at all. And that number, they're, but they're all producing vulnerabilities and code that we live with and use. And so I try to hold that as a big picture number, 27 million because that's where I want to address, as opposed to a particular organization. And yes, I consult, so I deal with particular organizations and try to make them better, sure. But that's how I make my living. But nevertheless, 
I want to think about the bigger picture. And that's the big picture that we have to get to is those 27 million so that we're all doing the best that we can rather than just piling on more vulnerability and weakness. Yeah, everything you said was pretty close to my experience as well. The whole kind of security being a lone kind of group inside the organization, but then it being spread more into the engineering and kind of a part of that definition of done within teams. The thing that I find really interesting is that even when it, even when that happens though, it sorts of comes if we can get to it. It's a thing that we try and do, we still got to deliver on time. We still got to ship every week or every sprint or whatever it is, but it's something that we just get around to at the end and maybe do a scan every couple of weeks, a couple of sprints or things like that. So if you have a organization that's trying to move towards that more secure embedded model within the engineering team like how do you how do you illustrate that journey to them well i'm going to let james please to start with the organizational parts his mastery because i think that's you got to set this up first yeah and i think some of that i talked about earlier talking about our philosophy behind in engineering that makes a huge difference because you've empowered the developers to actually do their job. One of the things that I've done, and we've been very successful at this jointly with Brooke and I, is you've got to sell, we'll talk a lot about the bottom up here, if you want to call it that, but we also do from the senior management down, and you've got to sell them first. One of the most successful programs I ever had is I came in and they originally wanted me to be the CISO. And I said, no, I don't want to do that. I want to do product security this time. And they said, you're going to have to sell same problem. You're going to have to sell engineering to do what you really want them to do. So what we did is we sold the head of engineering into head of engineering, brought his whole entire staff in, and they had to agree on what our roadmap was going to be for the next year or two. And that helped it be a success because every time one of the people reporting into the head of engineering didn't want to do something, Hey, you guys agreed to this last year or two years ago, but we also didn't make it to where it was a point in time where you agreed this two years, things aren't relevant anymore. We had meetings every month or every three months quarterly to, to make sure that things were still relevant and they actually helped enable the business to not only make a profit, but to be more secure. Over. So interestingly, are you done, James? Interestingly, you said it. Yeah. Simon, from the ground, from the ground up, you talked about Oh, and we'll get around to a scan in a couple of weeks. And that's exactly why it makes it difficult to do this. Um, one of the things that, that we do and in the book we're really keen on and that we stress in this survey is that it's got to be integral and organic or people won't do it. So, for instance, take... As take just take coding, and I personally have written hundreds of thousands of lines of commercial code in my day, so I think I, I understand the rigors of software development pretty well. And I've led teams and whatnot. I was the director of software development at a software house for a while, so I get the piece. I hope these pieces and the rigors and the demands. And the thing is, while you're coding, you expect to make mistakes. Maybe the most arrogant diva coder doesn't expect to make mistakes because they know their code is self-documenting and they don't have to write any comments. I'm being facetious here. But for most of us mere mortals, we know we're going to blow it and we expect to blow it. And so we are looking for mistakes. We're hoping the compiler will find the mistakes. Maybe we've run a linter 
to try it, although linters used to be so noisy in my day that they were very difficult to get going. So what I want is a tool that while I'm coding or in that cycle, I can run and see, get as much stuff as possible. And if I'm running my security thing only at the big build that's going for the release or is somewhere down the line, I've already moved on. There's a mind share here. I've already moved on. And sure, find the big yes. things. Some things won't even show up for three weeks or three months in the field. That we know. That's happened to me. It happens to everybody. But the stuff that I want to get that I can get, if I can find it while I'm coding, that is so powerful. And they call it shift left, but I personally really dislike that because it implies that software development is linear. And today it's full of parallelisms and iteration. And it's just not linear in that way. So I don't really like that term. But if it works for someone else and gets this stuff earlier, great. But what I want is a tool while I'm coding. And even if it only finds a subset, that is very powerful. And so that's an example of the kind of integral type of work that, that we try to build. So it's not really out of my way and something extra, but it's, it's just another way of finding errors. And whatever the testing regime is, However, that works, doing abuse cases, doing negative cases. As I talk to clients, I find over and over again, they have a really good functional test regime, but they're not doing any abuse cases and not any negative cases at all. And that's a big surprise. Oh, right. People aren't using my software the way it's intended to be used. They're using it the way <laughs> they want to leverage it for their purposes that have often very nothing to do with my software. Consider botnet. You got CPUs. I don't care what your software does. If I can get those CPUs, whether they're in Amazon or in somebody's desk or in somebody's hand, I don't care. Those are CPUs I use for my purposes. Nothing to do with your functionality, but very lucrative. That's the kind of thing that, that you want to think about in your testing and your regime. And there's a lot of different things. Now, in that same space, I will note that, and I'm going to say this from stages that I have said it from stages, and I will say it at our RSA in San Francisco next week once again, that the tools, really none of them, despite what vendors may say, are really up to a single tool task. We have to put different methods together in order to reach the state of the art of the attacker's level of exploit sophistication and ability. And so that means you're going to be doing lots of different kinds of tests, and you don't expect any one of them to be the single cure-all beastie. you got to just put them together and do your best there, which is a, a point we stress very highly in, in our book, Building Insecurity at Agile Speed, and, and the most recent book, and, and of course in the survey, is that it takes thinking about your regime carefully. But that's what I mean by integral, part of your regime, it's part of your coding style. Threat modeling is easy and, and integral to your design process. And then it doesn't become, and we've done this, by the way. We have actually seen, I remember our dear friend Sandeep, who's gone on to a fabulous career, came back and he said, I found a team who aren't doing a couple of our tasks. It was one team in his entire organization. That's success. We don't expect perfection, but we do see that, that lots of adoption because everybody's on board and it's not that it's easy, but it's organic and natural to the development process. So it's not that you're not going to have more work. 
You are. You actually said it, Simon, the definition of done. I think we may have been one of the first, if not the very first, agile security definition of done that we put out. I think it was in 2014, maybe, or 2013. I don't remember. But you wouldn't believe how that shifted people's mindset. Because right there, we're not going to call it done, the sprint done, until we've done these things. And it was simple. It was easy. But, Hmm. oh, my gosh. What that does to shift the mindset, yeah, integral. I I think that is an important point and connects back to what we were saying before. Definition of done in a lot of people's eyes is somewhat of a cost. It's an expense to make sure that you're writing quality code, you're commenting it, you're doing security, whatever it is. But I think the risk level or the potential doubt, like, potential costs are starting to show up from not doing that at an executive level. Reputation cost, security cost, and even regulation costs that is coming into effect. So that's why I think we're starting to see these kinds of people willing to invest in these areas in a more modern context. Yeah. And I think one of the things that we didn't touch on recently, it all culminates into what we call culture hacking. And we spend, Brooke spent a lot of time, so did I, on the chapter that we had in our last book. And we talk about it quite a bit. Because without cultural change, your SDL and the organization and management of its supporting software security program can't be entirely effective. And one of the things that all that happened where we went to program managers, we went to VPs, we went to the entry-level engineers, all requires a cultural change. So in order to make it to where they feel that that security is part of the business model and part of developing good code, it takes a while to do that. I, one of the reasons I brought Brooke into one of my most successful programs was because I knew he was an expert at that, and he helped me quite a bit at doing cultural change at one of our places, and it made for an extremely successful program. Um, that's another way that we accomplish what, you're, what you asked in your question. So do you feel like that security standard is table stakes day in most teams? So I think it's still in a growth pattern. You can't believe how many companies that Brooke and I talk to. And it's not just the smaller companies that aren't addressing security. And then sometimes you'll have the smaller ones that are doing these just unbelievable security programs that probably embarrass some of the larger programs that you'd assume do have security. But all in all, no, it's not across the board. I think it's much stronger than what we've had years ago. Unfortunately, the whole concept of the chief product security officer, just like the CSOs in years past, there's a lot of growth that needs to happen, both from the leadership standpoint and both in, to include the development standpoint. So we're not close, but Can we're I getting there very quickly. Can I tell a little story here? It was a prospective client, and it's easy to go down the wrong path if you don't understand the problem. And there are some myths that are being that are holding us back, but I want to tell this story because it was clear to me, I'm talking to this client and they were looking for someone to attest that they were doing a lot, which not something I will necessarily do. So we didn't actually do the engagement. But interestingly, while we were investigating what it would take, they actually told me one of their big problems without realizing it. So what they were doing, they were a large manufacturer as well as writing a lot of software. I'm not going to tell you who, of course. And their way of handling security bugs, or actually all bugs, was like manufacturing defects. 
a certain percentage. When you're manufacturing, a certain percentage is allowable. Let's say it's 20%. And you're just going to throw those away. You're going to throw those widgets away. Or people can return them and you'll give them back. But software ain't widgets. <laughs> and that's the problem. Once it's out there, it's out there vulnerable. And so, of course, the teams were, they had a target. Let's say it was 60% bugs. And they choose the most convenient 60% bugs. Of course, that's not the right way to choose security bugs. Some bugs that are hard to fix might be not very important, or they might be killers, right? Some bugs that seem so very small might be things you really have to fix right now. It's about risk and attacker advantage. So you have to do a little threat modeling there of what can happen and assessment. And that's what you need. And it doesn't matter whether there are 50 or three. You want to close the three that are important. And the percentage is irrelevant. And they, it was pretty clear that the reason they were having a lot of problems in, the, in their industry is that their teams were just deciding for themselves without any security assessment or any risk assessment at all. We like these 50% and that will meet our target. And that works with widgets. <laughs> it doesn't work with software. Unfortunately, I never got to tell them that they were making, I would have, I wanted to get paid for telling them that was their big mistake and they didn't do the engagement. But I'll say it to you, if you're a manufacturer and you're doing your software security bugs like that, you're doing it wrong. One yeah, and things- I think it's really coming into that. You pointed out one of the important things there is that people getting grasping the mindset is going to be an important thing. Being able to not just say security is, as you pointed out, like a factory line or anything like that. There's a whole kind of mental model to be taken on from a secure mental model. How do you, if I'm someone in an organization which is trying to get this more more visibility, but I'm coming from that bottom-up approach, how do you propose that I kind of create that influence in the organization? Yeah, you can highlight this, I think, with you've got all these different uh, very high visibility locations of software, not just network security that have happened in the last few years. And so the, the senior management and the board of directors are very knowledgeable. If you expose your company to this type of risk now, it can result in a loss of business, market share, reputation, and also result in severe legal and reg- regulatory penalties. But getting back to going from so the top side, the messaging has actually gotten much easier, except when you try to sell the price of it, which is a different discussion. But getting the bottom up folks, so to speak, that you're talking about to get interested in it, it has to be that they know you have to get to the point where it's if somebody talked about the quality of their code, nobody would argue. They go, no, that's part of being a good coder. I'm going to lose space if my quality of my code looks terrible. We have to get to the same point. Um, just like it is in industrial areas where it's just like safety. But in this case, security has got to be prominent as in, in the process of developing good code. So if we do our job right, which we believe we've done a, a couple of times at least over the years, where and how we had success was that the developers themselves didn't need the security as an overlay anymore. It was part of what they did. So it got built into their DNA and it was just part of building good, solid code. Very similar 
to the industrial areas where safety is built in there and they don't even think about it as a separate add-on issue anymore. Um, and we've seen that happen with privacy. Sometimes it's effective, sometimes it's not. And we've also seen it in the qual- area of quality. I'll tell another story. And this was a surprise to me, but maybe James had anticipated it. So we were trying to shift the culture hacking. And that, by the way, that's Nooper Davis's term. I want to give her credit. She's fabulous. And I love her dearly. Um, she's the one who coined the, we're culture hackers, Brooke. And I went, yeah, that's it. That's it. I'm going to use that term, but I want to give her her, her due. <laughs> I didn't originate it. It was new. But nevertheless, we were having a little trouble due to past cultural things. There were a lot of long timers in, in that company. And we were having a little difficulty getting it really going. And we made everybody... So you always have externally reported stuff. If you're big enough, you start people start gunning for you and they look for bugs. And that's good. There's a lot you can do with that material, by the way. You can tell whether you're being successful or not. And we ought to touch on that in a moment, but how you use that. But nevertheless, um, the little surprise to me was we. I had a community of practice going and it was going as well as it was, not as well as it had been done before that I'd done it. And I was a little worried about that. And I kept saying, I don't know what's wrong here. What's wrong? So we made it so that people started discussing their problems with those external things, those externally reported bugs. And what happened, interestingly, was the shared pain moved that cultural shift rather intensely towards a real, once people started realizing, oh, we're all suffering from the pain of the stuff that we that we're releasing and seeing not just my team and I'm keeping it quiet and I'm just trying to deal, but everybody else has got these problems too. Somehow that shared pain was the glue that made it go. And that's what we mean about culture hacking. You have to watch and really pay attention to what people are saying and what matters to them. And when we really focused on on how we were dealing with those things and and how to assess them, how to risk assess them and how to quickly triage what needed to be fixed right away and what could wait and how to make decisions around that. When we got all that stuff in place, it's pretty amazing how that shoved the cultural underneath to, oh yeah, this is stuff we do. This is what we do. This isn't something from on high. This is what we do to make our own lives better and we have less of this pain. It was pretty interesting because I wouldn't have never, I personally would have never used shared pain as a motivator. That's just not my style. I like live, this is great, look at our great code, pride and work. And we had lots of that. Don't, don't, that's not what I'm saying. But it was something about that shared pain that really moved the culture tremendously forward so that it, everything dropped into place, just boom. I, I do believe in single sources of truth. And when you can't get everyone to focus on the same problem and not have echo chambers and silos, I think that's definitely a powerful way to create change within an organization. So I understand that, Brooke. Thank you so much for your time today, Brooke and James. As if anyone is listening to this, you can actually find the comparative agility capability on comparativeagility.com. And I think it's a great idea to benchmark yourself against Brooke and James' questions to really see where you are on your continuous improvement journey with security. Where can people find out more about you, Brooke and James? I'm I, Because of the books and everything, I tend to be fairly, it's pretty easy to put my name into any search engine. You'll get pages, 
Of course, I have a LinkedIn profile. I occasionally tweet, usually only about things to do with professional and AppSec and software security. I'm not, I'm a private person. I don't usually say a lot about myself, but you can find me on Twitter, Brooke Schoenfield, BRK. I don't know why I didn't put the two O's in there, but I didn't. Schoenfield on Twitter, and I have a fairly active LinkedIn profile, but there, my first solo book, Securing Systems, has its own Facebook page, and Brooke S.E. Schoenfield has a Facebook page where you can find me as well. I'm less active there. I'm not a big Facebook fan, but whatever. I do go there, so you can find me there. LinkedIn is probably best. Brooke and Twitter, I'm easily found. Yeah. Great. And what about you, James? Uh, you can find me on the, you know, all my contact information's on the landing page for comparative agility for this question questionnaire or survey that we've done. So you can get me in my email address or LinkedIn. LinkedIn's probably the best way to get a hold of me. If you're looking at more of my thoughts on security across the board, I'm uh, working on my 16th book on cybersecurity. So you can look those up too, or just email me and I'll tell you what I'm working on right now. Great. Thank you for your time today and we'll talk to you soon.